Welcome to the Vigor Life Podcast, a source of inspiration, lessons, stories, skill sets, mindsets, and strategies to invigorate and expand all areas of your life. Let's go. What's going on? Coach Lucas back here with the Vigor Life Podcast. And uh, apart from being very caffeinated, I'm very excited uh, to have today's guest on the show. Uh, someone who I have followed for a long time now, uh, you know, from the time that I would go to Perform Better Summit, I was over a decade ago, as he was with Exos, uh, went through a ton of, I would say, the knowledge that he's already dropped. So the, to, to have him on a show and talk about the, actually, what's in the book, but just in general, the language of, of coaching, and we'll, we'll talk about the book later because it's, it's so, so good, and we kind of just touch base on that. Uh, so I'm, it's, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show, Nick, um, man, couldn't be happier to, to dive into this. And like, I, like I said before, I'm going to try to squeeze as much juice out of the orange for everybody listening to this. Cause I, cause uh, it, it is a topic. I'm like, everybody knows me. I'm like, I'm geeky about this stuff. So, so I'm going to put you under the microscope here. That's, that's good. Luca, man, it, it's an honor. And I got my cold brew in front of me. So even though it's 6 PM, I'm breaking my nutritional habits. And for you, I'm caffeinated up as well. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. So, I mean, here's the thing. Like the, the first, I think that what I really like to dig into is the insight of, you know, what was the trigger that made you write this book? I mean, you have such a, uh, I would say, such a body of knowledge and experience in, in the industry. Um, and even just from the outside looking in, you know, you've done so many different things and trained so many different people. And, but, but what was the thing that made you go like, listen, like, I'm going to write this book and not only, you know, write this book. I mean, this is, we'll get to this, but I mean, this is a body of work. This is very, very, very deep. It's not something that was like, Hey, here's a book deal. And like, Oh, I got to write a book. All right, cool. Yeah. Let me drop it. I mean, this was, you know, just looking it's in front of me. I mean, it's, it's some serious, serious knowledge drop, but like what triggered you to go, all right, this is the book I have to write. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, a lot of people are asking that, that question. I even ask myself that question because when you hear strength conditioning coach, you don't think the title of the book, language of coaching, especially when you get in and realize that the book is truly digging into to language or the fancy word linguistics and how it impacts, you know, the way our, our clients, our athletes move and how we connect with them. But you know, there is a trigger. There, there is a moment that I can go back to. And so I was, I was 19 or 20. I was learning how to become a personal trainer, which I always recommend to anyone going into the movement profession, make a bit of money on the side when you're getting your degree, but learn how to interact with a lot of different people. And so lucky enough, I had an opportunity to do that while I was at Oregon State University. And as a part of this process, we would shadow uh, other more experienced trainers who also were students. And one of these guys, his name was JC, JC was a charismatic, still is a charismatic uh, individual who just loved, loved training, loved training people, and loved people in general, and just had a vitality and an enthusiasm for life. So the first thing that, that really stood out to me is the way this guy went about his business was with such passion and such belief. It was almost like this gravitational pull, and his clients would orbit around his enthusiasm. So that was the first thing to kind of paint the picture of who this person was. But as I spent time with him, his knowledge was second to none. I mean, he knew anatomy, biomechanics, physiology, 
he could spout off rotator cuff muscles and all the different ways to activate. I mean, this dude was an encyclopedia, okay? But that's not what stood out about him. As good as he was at the what, he was even better at the how. And when you'd watch this guy coach, it's like he would just be calculated on every single word, not in a rehearsed manner, but in that he did not want to waste one moment of airtime with his clients. And just by his mannerisms and the way he would speak, they would lean in to pick up every freaking word. And so it took me a little while to realize this, but inevitably I figured out that he was so precise with his cues. Specifically, he was precise with the last thing he said before they went into the battle that is movement. And many of his clients were bodybuilders, Luca. And so if you know anything about bodybuilding, they're always trying to look for this cognitive edge. And then how can they focus, especially for like the low lats or the posterior delt or the long head of the tricep? Like they're literally trying to find this mind magic that allows them to think about a movement in a certain way to get that superior pump and activation. And this dude was the king, the first king of cues. And so I'll never forget the light bulb hit me. And me and this guy had a mutual friend, a mutual mentor, a guy named Guido. And I went into Guido's office. And Guido's an athletic trainer, spent 15 years in pro baseball, just encyclopedia Britannica times 10, took it to a whole nother level. And I said, Guido, man, what JC is doing out there, it's finally dawned on me. The way this dude is communicating is like ninja-esque. He was just slicing through mental barriers with his words. And I said in that moment, and it's the, 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 the name of the book came to me, I'm going to write a book one day called The Form Within. That, and that might have been a better name. That, that might be more of a <laughs> New York Times uh, bestseller type of a name. But The Form Within, this is now almost 15 years later, is the language of coaching. So when you talk about a body of work, academically most certainly, but it's a body of work in terms of a lifelong commitment to thinking about the importance of this. Man, that's so many, uh, I would say, th there's so many questions I want to ask to follow up with that because, uh, you know, that's a great story to pinpoint it. But, you know, when you go, I don't, when I go into a gym, if, you know, I also do a bunch of consulting for gyms and stuff like that. And, you know, look on the floor and see who's engaging with a client in a certain way, what they're saying, how their body language is and everything else and how much they're getting out of it, you know, there, there is such a, the, the language of coaching is, is such a big, uh, let's just say, if you have that skill set, you can get so much more out of the athletes and clients that you train. I mean, it's so valuable, but where does one even begin, right? Because one of the things I actually was listening to, uh, to you on Eric's podcast, and you said that he, you know, JC didn't even necessarily know, you know, what he was doing, but he was doing it, um, almost intuitively in some way, right? That he had a yeah, for sure, for sure. gift there. And, but the question is like, how do you, you know, how does somebody that's like, you know what, I got, I got to get a lot better than that. You know, some, somebody that's up and comer in industry and they're looking at a coach and going like, dude, how does he do that? I'm, I can't do that with my clients. How does he see this? How, you know, wh why am I not seeing what he's seeing? Why am I not saying the words that they're saying mm -hmm. to them and getting mm -hmm. what's out of it? Like, how, you know, how does somebody dive into that I mean, obviously, apart from for sure getting this, this book, but, you know, if you extracted some of these higher viewpoint lessons, you know, how do you go about that to become a better coach, have better cues, uh, be able to recognize what people need in that moment? Yeah. 
Woo. <laughs> How long do we have there? That, that, that's, that's an easy one, Luca. There we go. <laughs> I mean, but, but, but let's, let's use the analogy of, of building a house. And so we, we don't see it, but we know a house needs it. And that's a foundation, right? And so that rock solid foundation in our industry, that is what I collectively refer to. And I've already said it today as the what, okay? It's the, it's the substance of what we do. It's our core tools, if you would, in our toolbox. And so what is that? That's the ability to know how to, one, assess human movement in all of its various levels. And then knowing how to influence human movement in all its various levels, right? So those are the, those are the two fundamental things. If we take the human condition, the psychology, the person away, here's a body that moves and here's my tools to make it move better. And so collectively we call that biomechanics, anatomy, kinesiology, physiology, program design, and all the various methodological elements from mobility and stability, strength and power, recovery, regen, ESD, and everything in between, right? So that is our capacity to build the body, the mover, so to speak. But ultimately we know there is a person inside of that player. There is a thinker. There is someone with perceptions. There's someone with experiences that might be similar, but also might be different to our own. So there is a driver in the car. It's not just a car. So when it comes to the development of yourself as a coach, you can't get away from the fact we need to know how to build the car. You know, from a Formula One perspective, there's one driver and everybody else, right, works on the car for the most mm -hmm. part. So I, I try to be very clear that my book on the language of coaching and how we coach is by no means an attack on what we coach. If anything, you, you started to read it. I celebrate what we coach and I highlight it in chapter one in that yeah. if you don't know what to coach, it's futile to be thinking too early about how to coach better. The best external cue or analogy targeting the wrong error is not gonna make a change. And so let me be very clear that we need that baseline ability to assess the human body and know how to build it. But then we need to recognize that beyond the car, there is a driver. And I think where we are in the evolution of our industry in general, and when I say industry, I'm talking movement profession. So that's anyone that teaches movement for a living, from therapist to coach, parent and personal enthusiast, and everyone in between. The time has come now for us to recognize that once you lay that foundation, once you build those walls and the structure of what we call a building is up, well, then we need to start to recognize that each of those buildings have a personality, have perceptions, which is why when you walk into a house, it isn't just blank, is it? When you walk into a house, you see the walls are painted. You see different kinds of furniture. You see different paintings on the wall. You know, some people have their cutlery in the first drawer. Other people have it in the third drawer. Some people have a lots of pots and pans really well organized. Other people don't have anything at all. Other people have a blank kitchen because they always order out or order in. And so what am I talking about here? The, the, the house, if you would, that's the structure, that's the what, that's the foundation, that's the car.
but how we decorate the house. That's the person. That's their personality. That's how they like to be interacted with. That's how they connect with their body and connect with the world. And so ultimately for me, the language of coaching is about moving from car to respecting driver, moving from what to understanding how so that you can ultimately better connect with your athlete to teach them how to better connect with their body. Yeah, I mean, I think you answered that perfectly. And uh, kind of to unpack that, actually, you know, I, I do feel like there, there's kind of a, a pendulum, right? I, I feel like sometimes where you, you do have to know the what and you have to get great at the what. So you, you do. Know, knowing what to look for even, right? Like you're uh, the, the, the three Ps, which is position, power, and in pattern. You, you have to know, for instance, okay, what is, what is this supposed to look like? Hip extension, you know, good squat. Yeah. Uh, you know, overhead flexion, whatever, you have to know those things. And, you know, there's a lot of people, I think, that have dove really deeply into that, which is, okay, it's great, you got to have that. But this other side, which is, how do you get people to get to those places mm -hmm. and those positions and to do those things, which is a whole nother world. But I, but I think that whole nother world. You, you, you have to find, and I think that this is what's great is that you have to find that whole, you know, to be a great coach, you got to find that mesh of the two. And as you're talking about the, that there's this person, something that you talk about in the book and, and I've heard you talk about live a lot about is, you know, how big of a factor motivation is to get somebody mm. to be able to execute things. And I'd love to dive into this, right? Because no matter yeah. how many cues you know and, and, and the what that you know, getting somebody to do stuff is so closely attached to, I mean, our behavior change is so closely attached to motivation. But I'd, for sure. I'd love for you to dive deep, uh, a little deeper into that because it's, I find it very fascinating. I'm curious about it. Yeah. So I, I like to think of motivation like a battery. And, that, and it's almost like when it comes to learning, let, let's say if learning is the goal, if we want this person to move from where they are to where they want to be, and that can be in a lot of different facets, but they, they've learned something. Well, within learning, learning is, is powered by attention. If I don't pay attention to something, I can't gain anything from it. And so ultimately, attention powers learning. But when you think about, well, what do you like to pay attention to? What will you commit your attention, which is a very limited capacity resource, what will you commit your attention to for extended periods of time? Things that bring you joy. And things that bring you joy or things that you know will inevitably bring you joy, because sometimes working out is not always joyful, but you know the outcome that it will give you is, right? So things that bring you joy are ultimately things that you are motivated to engage in. And sometimes that joy is acute, it's right now, and other times that joy is delayed in the case of physical adaptation or winning a trophy at the end of a long season. And so attention powers learning but motivation powers attention. So I like that you've asked that question, Luca, because I don't always get asked that. And so you're keen to, to pick up on that observation. And so from a motivation perspective, and if I was to ever do a second edition of this book, I'd probably spend even more time talking about it. But, but ultimately, there's a couple things. For me, when I look at motivation, they have to understand why they are doing what they're doing. You know, as we like to say, the why and the what. And so let's use a very tangible example. As strength coaches, I think we, by our very nature, have to be good salesmen. 
in that very few of our athletes play the sport of strength and conditioning. They're not weightlifters. They're not powerlifters. In the world I currently work, they play rugby. In the world I used to work, it was American football. And the strength and conditioning was one cog in a larger wheel. But ultimately, it wasn't the cog that was the final motivation for most of these players. And so when we're working with someone, let's say, for example, on a squat, it wasn't a squat in rugby or football. It's this is the body position you need to get into for pass blocking. This is the body position you need to get into when it comes to the scrum in rugby or the body position to load before we tackle. And what I would inevitably start to do is take the motivation from the field, translate its relatedness to the movement in the gym, but then I use that comparison from a cueing perspective. Okay, when you load to the bottom, I want you to load tension into your legs like you do right before you push in the scrum. Or I want you to load tension into your legs just as you do right before you go into contact. Now, to, to the, the naked eye, that might look fairly superficial and even obvious. But if you dig into that, you see that I'm actually trying to pull on that motivational string. One, I'm taking a movement they love and arguably they're more familiar with. And I'm drawing a comparison now to this relatively similar movement, but in a different context that we're calling the squat. But then I'm double downing, I'm double down on that idea and I'm turning it into a cue where I take an element of that context of that sport that they love. And then I use that to frame up how this movement should feel or how this movement should be performed. And that's just a very micro example of how we put motivation into the attention that drives the learning. And we could give many other examples and possibly even examples at different layers. But the ultimate thing is motivation drives attention. And so once we understand what they are motivated to achieve, the big thing for me is how do we weave that narrative into buy-in around the program generally and how we cue them within it to get better specifically. That's great. And, and you mentioned layers. So actually, I wanted to kind of bring things up and, and, and definitely want to bring up practical examples of, of different things. Cause I think that's how people kind of pick up on things like the, I guess the macro for uh, the motivation is, you know, when you sit down with an athlete or a client and you really peel the onion to find out what's the reason they're even doing this. Bingo. Right. And, yeah, and I'm going to sure. kind of jump maybe a little bit to the more non-athlete. I, I guess to me, everybody's an athlete of life, but it's a, somebody that's 55, 60 or wants to pick up a, a grandkid or something. Right. And they're like, Oh, my back hurts all the time. I, I can't yeah, even want to hike yeah. with my family. Uh, and that's the, that macro motivation, but, but micro. Um, and, and that's why I want to kind of dig in is every training session may be bringing up uh, saying like, Hey, how, you know, how you kind of squat down to pick up your, your kid, maybe. Uh, I want you to stay, you know, I want you to do that. So, and this is how this is going to help you out. Remember how we talked about you being able to pick your kid up without pain and have the strength to do it, right? This, this exercise is going to help you do that. So the, the macro is like the big picture that they're like, Hey, listen, I'm here, Luca, because this is what I want to achieve. I want to be out of pain. I want to be stronger because I want to do, you know, fill in the blank. And then on a micro level, on a, on a coaching session, you're constantly bringing up this thing that's motivating them uh, and, and sure. attaching the exercise and the thing you're doing to that end goal. Is, is that 
you know what you mean by that as far as layers going. It's being I, I think I think you just gave Luca, you just gave a, a perfect one-to-one example to my example using the squat for American football or the squat for rugby. And then we take that motivational end state they want, picking up their kids. And we say, listen, this is a movement that's critical to you achieving that. So that's kind of, let's call that layer number one. And then layer number two, as you've identified, is that, okay, as you perform this squat, I want you to drop down like you're picking up your grandson, right? And that's going to start to relay, okay, I got to get deep enough. I've got to be in a good position and I'm going to want to come up nice and controlled. Now to, to the individual, they're not having to download all that detail. They just get that experience visually, extract the emotional feeling of that, and they're able to copy and paste that implicitly into their movie, into their movement one-to-one. And so I think you've nailed it there, and that's it. The why and the what for the movement, and then try to steal some of those real-life visuals to coach them through it. And now we're making this deep connection where in their mind, they're just moving, but they also feel something deeper is going on even though if we ask them, they might not be able to put their finger on it. But for you and I, Luca, and everyone listening, we know we're leveraging their why through what we are doing and how we're coaching. And that's why I always talk about, are you stealing your client or your athlete's personal narrative and using it as you coach them through their movement narrative? And and the thing is, because of what you're bringing up and how important it is, it's, it's such a key that people find out, you know, become detectives of their athlete client lives to be able to, to be able to steal that narrative. I think that's, Bingo. you know, I feel like that's what this is bringing up a lot is like, well, you, you can't help this person as much as possible if you don't uncover these whys for them so that you not, not just a big picture on, on, Hey, I just sold them into a long-term program. No, like on a daily basis or weekly basis, when you coach them, it has to constantly be layered into the training or you're, you're just not going to get the best result out of it. No, for, for sure. Julian treasure, who's got five Ted talks. And, oh, phenomenal. And, and he's phenomenal, but phenomenal. he says this, and I've been fortunate to start to build a, a relationship with Julian around presenting and communication coaching. And he has this quote that I just, I love. And that is you cannot be understood until you understand right? So you cannot be understood until you understand the person who is in front of you. Because at the end of the day, we have to respect the fact that we communicate from a place of personal bias. And I don't mean that to come across as being malicious, but when you communicate, you say the words, phrases, analogies, and examples that make sense to you that are based on your unique personal history of perceptions and experiences. And that's okay. That's a beautiful place to start. But what happens when I'm speaking with someone from a different generation, yet I'm still using all my pop culture type examples and my movie, my movie references aren't landing with this person. I'm missing a trick here. If I don't recognize that I'm 15 years older than them, they probably have never even seen that movie. And I'm trying to force that reference down, wondering why it's not landing and possibly inadvertently making them feel bad in the process. And so for me, before you can know how to coach, you need to know who you are coaching. And I would say in tandem to studying the the, the art and the science of cueing and communicating movement, I quickly realized that so much of my effectiveness 
is based on understanding who is in front of me. And no greater example than when I moved to Ireland. Yes, they speak English, but <laughs> they don't speak our version of English. And just to riff on this for a second, right? Cleats, which we in the U.S. know are the things we wear on our feet when we play field sports, they call boots, right? But they also call the trunk the boot, and they call the front of it the bonnet, right? So some kind of shoe reference with their cars. If you go to a pub, which is not called a bar, it's called a pub, and you order chips, right? They're going to be giving you French fries, <laughs> right? And if you want chips, the ones that we know in the States, they're actually called crisps. And chicken strips are some whack name called goujons, much more fancy. And by the name of it, they taste better. And you, and you see where this is going. And so their phrases, their analogies, their slang, as we say, their colloquial statements, for which we have many different kinds in the United States, as we do in Canada, as we do in all other countries. If I don't know their use of the language, if I don't know the experiences on which their use is based, then I'm going to struggle to speak their language, even if it's based on the same words from the same dictionary. And so it's the old adage, get to know the person in front of you. And I think with the language of coaching, Luca, this is just added gasoline to that fire to reinforce why it's so important. Because the fuel of the cue is the person in front of you. So to, to kind of, I mean, I feel like this is going to connect a little because you said that motivation uh, drives attention, right? Yes. And, but then we have this, the triangle that you put kind of drop down in the book, which is attention to language to cueing. Can yeah. you uh, just kind of, for somebody that's listening, put those together and, and, and kind of explain how they, how they work together? I mean, first you got to have attention. Then language comes into play and in cueing, but making the distinction between language and cueing because some coaches might see it say like well isn't that the same thing um but i'd love to have you kind of break that down because i found it uh, i would say fascinating inside of the book as you're as you're explaining it yeah so and i talk about this throughout it so if i'm going down a, a different road here lucas stop me but i think probably the best way to look at the interaction between attention let's say language slash cueing and learning is what I talk about in, in chapter four. And that's this idea of capture, keep, and direct. And that when it comes to coaching an individual, the very first thing you must do is you must capture their attention. And I think as coaches, there are many ways to do that. You know, one of the ways that I do all the time is using an individual's name. You know, so the second I say, Luca, whether or not you, you want to, your brain's gonna pick up on that for just an instant. And that instant is gonna give me an opportunity then to grab your attention and to keep it and hold on to it. So from a coaching perspective, if every day I give the same spiel before the warmup, I do the same movements over and over again, I do the same orientation, inevitably we find that there's a shelf life to any one thing that could possibly grab our attention. And it's kind of like driving home the same way from work every day inevitably you can do it. You can be on the phone eating a sandwich and all of a sudden you're in your driveway and you don't even remember how you got there. You don't even remember the details of the experience. And I think the exact same thing, it's a phenomenon of tension in general 
The same thing happens with our athletes. And so we constantly have to be asking ourselves as a strength coach, as a personal trainer, as a physical therapist, as a sport coach, how am I going to capture attention today? And so let me give some real life examples of how I always go about it. And as we've been saying, Luca, there's layers to this. And so the first layer, we'll call it the global layer. When I bring a group in, I always start, I talked about this in the book with a WWH, what, why, and how. And this starts to get at that motivation and rev it up immediately. So what are we doing? Today is a linear speed session. We're going straight ahead as fast as we can. Why are we doing it? We know in our game, rugby, we have to play both sides of the ball. When we're playing defensive side, we have got to eat meters. We have got to close space. We have got to suffocate the attacking offensive team. But equally, when we get the ball in hand, we have got to consume space. We have got to get to it first. We have got to put our flag in the ground, put our foot on the ground before them. Otherwise, we know they're going to take it away. That's why we're doing it today. How are we going to do it? Today, gentlemen, as we get into this speed session, you got to set your mind right. There's no weight out here on the field. I can't keep adding load to get you to pay attention. I can't keep making that bar heavier to get you to give more. So today, to give more, you're going to have to get it out of yourself. So I want you to set the tone right now. What are you going to bring to the table? Are you going to be a Prius or are you going to be a Porsche? What is your brand name? What is the brand? What is the marketing campaign in your mind to get ready to deliver for every drill that we're about to go through? You're getting so me fired up. I, I was about to say you're getting me fired up right now. I'm about to well, go. Well, well, that's it. But that's it. And so believe me, Luca, not every day is, is kind of fire and brimstone. I want to be very clear to people. Okay, some days got to be cool and calm. Some days to capture the attention for a, a high type A coach, some days to capture attention, you and I both know this, is to actually bring it down. Mm-hmm. It's to drop from red to blue and keep it nice and cool, right? And put a bit more on them. So whatever it is, it's what, why, and how. And that's how I capture the motivation, right? And that's how I capture their attention. From there to keep their attention, I've already done it. I've set that tone, but a couple little tactics that I'll use. As soon as I'm done with the WWH, I have what I call the red thread review. Now, I'm not saying these names to my athletes, so let me be clear. This is just how I, I, the terminology I use to teach other coaches what I'm doing. And so after that WWH, I'm like, okay, you got one minute, grab the partner next to you. I want you to reflect back to our last session. Review the two things that you nailed, the two strengths, the two wins, okay? We want to keep those shined up but I want you to specifically target the two opportunities that you cited yourself in our last session last Tuesday. Okay. And you're going to share and you're going to discuss how you're going to get better there. And so Luca, those could be technical. They could be mindset. They could be all sorts of different things and they get to own that space. That's for them. And so that's playing into that autonomy piece. I'm giving them an opportunity to voice what's important to them right now. So the only person holding them accountable to that truth, is them. And by the very nature that autonomy, we know is a key ingredient in motivation. So I've already stoked the fire to keep them in that headspace. And so then from there, we go through our warm up, and then we get to our first drill segment. So then, then the final piece, capture, keep, direct. Now I've got them stoked up. And the way I direct attention, well, then that's what the whole book is about, right? This is where we talk about, am I going to use internal cueing? Am I going to use external cueing? Am I going to use analogies? Right? How am I going to direct the focus of the mind, the spotlight of the mind, 
with my cues so they get the most out of that next movement. And so those are how those three pieces work at those various levels from global all the way down to local if I'm working one-on-one -on -one with a person. And let's be honest, we could give many different examples, but capture, keep, direct, and it's getting those first two pieces right that give you the opportunity to get into the club to play the song you want to play in their mind while they're performing that movement. I love that you brought that. I mean, that, that was a great example of, you know, just starting a session. And there's a bunch of stuff happening here because, you know, you brought it up, like when you say, hey, share with each other, you know, from last week, some of the wins, because such a big part of success in, in coaching and for, especially for, for the players and, and athletes and clients to, uh, I guess, to learn and keep that, that uh, mental learning, I guess, is self-efficacy. So you brought, you know, you brought some of that up, but like, how, like, what are some other ways? And, and you were talking about this, uh, like I said, in another show that I was listening to about, you know, involving the players, uh, or should I say clients, players, athletes, and then getting their perspective and how big of a role that plays. Uh, and you kind of just mentioned it there in that example, but how big of a role that plays in them, not only, like I said, with the motivation and self-efficacy, but uh, and autonomy, but then, but also learning, right? Also like well, that they learn better. But that's it. If we go back to our, almost like our Russian nesting dolls, right? You got learning is kind of like this big doll on the outside. Okay. And then inside learning, you have attention and then inside attention, you have motivation, but inside of motivation, right? What are the ingredients of motivation, Luca? That's really what we're talking about. And you've already named them all, but let's just name them for everybody in, in one fell swoop. And for me, what, what I look to around motivation is strictly based in the theory of self-determination theory. And by the very name, even if you've never heard it, self-determination theory. You know, we want to be determined, but we want to be self-determined. As humans, uh, someone once told me, it's not that we don't like change. We don't like to be told to change. And so motivation is heavily dependent on the individual, one, believing they have control of their destiny, two, believing they have the capacity to achieve it, and three, feeling connected to something bigger than themselves, okay? So the words we use, feeling that you have at least in part some control of your destiny, that you are causative in the outcomes you hope to achieve, we call that autonomy. Now, too often in coaching, Luca, people hear the word autonomy and they think it's a free-for-all. Oh yeah, let the athlete write the program, cue themselves. We just put some balls out on the pitch and let them go. That's not it at all. Autonomy comes in many different layers. Early on, to respect a new athlete's autonomy who's just joined your team, who's on your team because they believe you are the best and they can win with you, the best way to respect their autonomy to join the team is to be a good coach, is to give them good instruction, is to engender belief in you. That's how we respect their autonomy. And once they've gained the skill sets to know the what, why, and how of the drills and the activities associated with your session and your sport, it's to release more and more of that autonomy back to them so they can start to make some choices, possibly on how they focus, possibly on whether they do circuit A or circuit B, possibly if they need a recovery day or that they need to go a little bit harder. And we could get into that deeply, but that's autonomy. And it's a continuum. 
from there then, you, you mentioned it, self-efficacy. We have to engender this belief that they can perform a given skill, a given task, even when they're up against it. And self-efficacy when robust means even if I have a bad game, a bad at bat, that doesn't deteriorate my self-belief that I still have the skill to go out and do it again and I will live to fight another day. That's self-efficacy, slightly different than self-confidence, which is more of a general feeling about me as a person. Self-efficacy is specific to the things I am learning. And then finally, relatedness. We are community-oriented animals. We want to feel that we're connected to people and that we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. Even if that community is one other person, in the case of one-on-one -on -one training with a client, let's say, and a personal trainer or a PT, that's still a community of two. And so those three ingredients are critical. And thus, the reason you hear me talk about the use of questions all the time, Luca, is because questions are the easiest way to invite the person into the learning process. Already by doing that, I'm respecting and stoking the autonomy fire. But two, questions also allow me to invite in their narrative, their experiences, their words, their perceptions, their beliefs, their likes, their dislikes. So when asking a question, it is a two bird with one stone situation in that I'm stoking the motivation while giving me the raw material needed to return the favor with cues that are unique to them, that reflect that I hear them, that I've listened to them, and in doing so, reinforcing that their autonomy to work with me in the first place was well-placed. And for me, that's the beauty, the nuance and the richness of this. So learning has attention, has motivation. Inside motivation, are you cultivating autonomy? strategically, self-efficacy, and then finally, community-relatedness. That's great. And, and it, it kind of, like one of the things that you see, uh, I think that's a, that's a challenge for a lot of coaches, especially when they're newer too, is, you know, because this whole self-efficacy brings me to the Goldilocks principle, which is, yep. you know, like, make, like for people to believe that they can do the task. And that also builds self-esteem and self-confidence, obviously. But what, what you... What I see a lot, and I, and I did this as, as a younger coach too. So like, I'm, cert I'm certainly, uh, I would say, uh, guilty of that when I was younger, where you want to share all this stuff that you know, and you're giving people very challenging things to do. And, but they're too challenging because the whole Goldilocks principle is like giving the person just the right amount of challenge yes. that they'll improve uh, and not making it too easy so they're not bored, not making it too challenging so they don't get frustrated. But how, you know, this whole Goldilocks principle, just some of your views on this, especially when you work with groups of people, right? Where it might be a little bit easier to think, you know, okay, one-on-one, -on -one, uh, this, this might be a little bit easier to do, but what about when you got, you know, a group of athletes, a team of athletes, or even in group training, um, mm. dealing with something like that, where you might have some, you know, decently different levels of, of competency? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. Um, and again, th there's layers to it. So fortunately or unfortunately, at the levels that I have been working at with guys going into the NFL combine, now professional rugby, there, there tends to be a little bit more of a level setting across ability. 
but most certainly there are still differences. And what I want to respect is probably many of the listeners, especially if they work with non-elite or even junior athletes, we know that the levels can be far wider than what I personally work in. So, so there might be plenty of people, I'm sure there are plenty of people, even yourself, who could, could answer that question better around the strategies they might use. But I think there are, there are two different ways to approach the Goldilocks principle, and that is getting it right. And the two ways to challenge it is how are you challenging them externally in terms of the physical environment, the physical task itself, and then how are you challenging them internally in that what are you demanding from them in that, okay, today do we have the bumpers on while we're bowling? So the challenge is a little bit less. I'm just looking to get a, a, an ease into this movement or do I have the mental bumpers down? And I'm looking for you to challenge yourself to be ultimately precise. And so we can create these challenges both externally in the environment, but internally in how precise we want this person to be in their execution of it. So for example, we don't want you to bobble at all when you land on your single leg hop versus, okay, you can touch the other foot down. Well, in both cases, I'm still doing a single leg hop over a six inch hurdle. But in one case, I'm internally challenging you to land stick and not touch. And in another one, I'm saying, okay, you can possibly touch. One has the bumpers on at the bowling alley and one doesn't. And so I think as long as you think of it in those two categories, you can start to find the right mix. So let's give, then give an example. Let's stick with plyometrics because I actually think it's one of the easiest ones to articulate this. When I'm teaching linear hops, and let's say we normally would set up five hurdles, I would do this with my NFL combine guys. I'd have six inch hurdles as a starting point, And then I might have, you know, your, your eight to 12 inch in the middle and then possibly a, a 12 to 15 inch. And we'd go through three sets of five each leg. And I would say, hey, as you feel you can get tall in the air and fully clear the hurdle, you can go up. But equally, if you start to feel tired, you can go down. Now you're always looking for those fringe outliers, the overachiever who's challenging beyond their limits and the underachiever who always wants to tend to look good and won't put themselves in that challenging situation. But for the most part, if we do that, the competitive mindset says, I want to challenge up, not down. But still we give them that out. If they start to get tired, you can go back down and, and auto-regulate. So what we've done there is one, we, we recognize that the Goldilocks is going to be slightly different for everyone. So we put in, you know, the, the, the cold, the, the lukewarm, and the hot porch. We've got the different options based on the different tastes of the individual. Again, to the keen observer, you'll notice we've snuck, snuck in a little, a little cinnamon in there, a little bit of autonomy. They get to now choose their flavor, so to speak. So again, it's a two for one. And then the final piece is how I am challenging them mentally within the task. Uh, week one, I might say, okay, as you're doing this, if you land and feel a little bit rocky, go ahead and put that foot to the side, kick out the kickstand, recenter your balance, and then lift it back up. But now we might be two or three weeks in and say, okay, challenge today is can you land, can you stick, and have the least amount of reps where you have to put out the kickstand. And you might even take it up and ask, okay, Johnny, how many times did you have to put out the kickstand? Fred, how many times did you have to put out the kickstand? Janet, how many times did you put out the kickstand? And I'm not saying we, we, we put people on blast, but I'm just mm -hmm. trying to give you an extreme example there. 
And so for me, it's what I call coaching outside the movement. That's how I set the parameters of how difficult the environment is. And then coaching inside the movement, how difficult or how challenging I'm going to make it for you in how you execute it. Equally, technically, when someone's sprinting, for example, early on, I might be happy enough with just a little bit of hip separation that they're getting long off the line. But two or three weeks in, I'm looking for more complete push. I'm looking for more complete hip flexion. I'm looking for more projection. So early on, I might have those bumpers on. I'm giving basic cues. I'm looking, do they have the concept? But as I coach that movement from novice to elite, I start to tighten the bolt on the mental challenge, on the mental expectations. And so I just think as coaches, it's really important to know that I might not change the environment at all. When you're sprinting, Luca, you're sprinting, right? But I guarantee if you talk to my NFL combine guys, that sprint was not the sprint that they did day one was not the sprint that they did eight weeks later in terms of the challenge placed on them. But we progressively built that as their ability suggested they were capable of it. So internal and external in terms of the environment you create. That's a great example. I, lo I love the idea of tightening the bolt as, yeah. as time progresses and, and being able to kind of shift the boundaries, like I said, externally and internally. I love that. Uh, I, I wanted to definitely move to, because there's so much stuff in the book that's like, that has higher, I, I guess, 10,000 foot view principles, but then you go into things like, I love the communica uh, the coaching communication loop, uh, yes. the, D -D -D, the D D C D D. Um, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I, wanna, I think I was trying to say it too fast because I'm caffeinated. <laughs> but um, so I love that. And then you're talking about the long and the shorter one. But I, 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 you know, because it talks about describe, demonstrate, cue, do, debrief. And I think that's something that somebody from this call could legit take it. And, you know, today in a coaching session, use it and be better. But uh, would you mind kind of diving yeah. into that a little bit? So when I started, when you write a book called The Language of Coaching, the first thing you have to recognize, right, Luca, is that we talk a lot. We talk before a session. We talk at the beginning of a session, throughout it, at the end, and then as we're walking back to the locker room. And so we're communicating all the time. And thus, for me, it felt prudent to help the reader organize communication into these intuitive, tangible, practical buckets. And in doing so, it also allowed us to then say, okay, what kind of communication works best in the first bucket? What kind of communication works best in the third bucket? So on and so forth. Otherwise, if I just wrote a book on it, well, here's the best way to communicate, it's gonna confuse people because there are different ways to communicate in different types of content we should communicate at different times within a training session. And whether or not people know this intellectually, cognitively, behaviorally, they do it all the time. We know that there's certain times to communicate A and there's certain times to communicate B. So the, the coaching communication loop was my attempt to categorize these different buckets of communication, name them, and then that allowed me to better advise the reader on how to optimize the stuff, the words that they put in each one along the way. So let me just put that out there as, as a foundational thought. So as you noted, it, it, the DDCDD stands for describe it, demonstrate it, cue it, do it, debrief it. 
the, the mindset I want people in when they're thinking about this is this is the whistle-to-whistle -whistle training session, whether it's on the pitch, whether it's in the therapy room, whether it's on the training floor, right? Training has begun, and we are chiefly interested in your language habits around coaching and guiding movement. And I make that very clear in the book. I'm not talking about how to give a rousing, you know, team speech before the, the championship game or how to let someone down when they're not selected for the team. That's not what this book is about, albeit I think the principles carry over. So we're talking about the language when you are training, when you're teaching movement. It's called the coaching communication loop. Because if we think about it, as we teach these different segments of a session, what you might call drills, activities, movements, or exercises, we have communication habits that exist before, during, and after the movement. And we repeat these, not that we're saying the same thing, but these categories repeat themselves as if on a loop. And they surround each of those movement moments throughout a given training session. Okay, so that's call it foundational thought too. So let's dig into an example. Uh, as you rightly noted, I talk about the long loop, which is the DDCDD, and then the short loop, which is just cue it, do it, debrief it, the last three segments. So I'll comment on both. Uh, if I was to teach a squat, let's say, it's the beginning of the summer program, I'm in college football, and I have freshmen in. Most certainly, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to describe the movement and I'm going to demonstrate. Uh, by describing it, I might say things like get under the bar, push straight up, step back, one, two, split your feet out. I want you squatting down and back. I want your elbows in tight at your side. You know where this is going. And so I give this description of some various content or quality. But what I'm literally doing, and the reason I select that word, I'm describing the movement. I'm describing what the movement is. And more than likely, I'm going to use a lot of internal language, a lot of technical language, because head, shoulders, knees, and toes. I'm trying to orient this athlete, this client, to the movement pattern. But because we know we're visual animals, our visual cortex is one of the largest cortices in the brain, we will also demonstrate. And in motor learning, just to nerd out, Luca, I know you like to nerd out, to, to, to nerd out for a second, the describe and demonstrate is what's called dual coding. And that's why in many visuals that we see in teaching or the PowerPoints that really stick with us, there's the right balance of a visual, an image that tells the story. And then there's a little bit of word, right? There's a little bit of, of, of verbiage to give it some context, no more, no less. And so that's kind of how describe and demonstrate work together. And the purpose of it is, is twofold. One, I'm trying to increase the athlete's knowledge generally of what they're about to do. Mind you, I haven't described how to do it yet. I just simply described what it is in the same way you would describe, you know, those are wheels, those are tires, that's a steering wheel, that's a brake. That's not the same as teaching someone how to drive a car. That's just describing what it is. Uh, the demonstration adds some value to the verbiage. And so I give them knowledge. But also, let's imagine you're that freshman. You've never been in a college weight room. You're working with this person, this coach, for the first time. Maybe you've never even had a strength coach. That description and demonstration also serves to reduce stress 
and anxiety, putting them psychologically in a better place to perform the movement. I don't know if coaches listening or therapists listening or trainers listening have ever thought of it that way, but the description and the demonstration is to increase their comfort with the possible, of, uh, possible uncertainty of what they're about to go through, okay? But, and this is a big but, that's a lot of information. If I'm that freshman, I'm probably nervous. <laughs> My heart rate is already through the roof. I've probably only processed half, if that. I definitely have the visual though. And so the third piece is the cue. And I always talk about, take that breath as a coach to allow that cue to sit on its own pedestal, to allow it to sit in its own attentional space. And so what I might then say for the squat is, okay, team, now, for this first round of the squat, I want you to imagine that we have a chair right behind you, right, or a box right behind you, just below your knees, kind of a low box. And as you squat, I just want you to think about squatting down and just in your mind tapping that box and standing back up. Not too fast, smooth down, smooth up, just tap the box, tap the box. You see what I've done there, Luca? I've, I've, I've painted a bit of a picture, and I've just I've told them what I want. I've told them what I want. I've told them what I want. But it's all the same thing. Tap the box. Tap the box. Three words, one focus, one spotlight. Okay? We ready? Boom. Everyone steps in the rack. They hit their first rep. Me and the coaches, we're scanning. We're seeing how everyone's doing. And then we debrief, right? And so the debrief in a group concept, like, okay, gentlemen, very good. On this next repetition, I want you to continue to focus on tapping the box. But this time now, that box is a little bit hot, okay? A little bit hot. So I want you to feel a little speed out of the bottom, a little push out of the bottom to get you going, okay? Hot box. And so you might get a little laugh on that one, and that's okay, Luca. And the guys that aren't laughing, you know, okay, they're the ones that are straight and narrow. And so within this, within this, we are starting just to build this, this narrative. And we're always going back to that one thing in the queue. Now, once I've coached that person enough times, then I don't need to keep going back to that description and that demonstration. So I go from the long loop to the short loop, and we just cue, do, debrief. And that debrief, as a final point here, is where if you need to get into a discussion of more technical language, if you want to ask them some questions, if you want to get a sense of, of how they're thinking, so on and so forth, that's the place to do it. That debrief almost acts like the, the description that you used with the novice. That debrief works for that expert moving forward. And that's a great place to invite them in. Well, how did that feel? Or what were you thinking? Or what do you think you should focus on on that next repetition? And so as we talk about unlocking autonomy, I find that the debrief is one of the best places to unlock autonomy as you move forward with your relationship with an athlete. That's a great point. That's where kind of where you're saying like involve and get perspective. And I, I've heard you talk about this, uh, you know, finding out what they're feeling, what they like, what they would explain, like, what does that feel like to you or, you know, then their analogy. Yeah, and, and this is where I think that's great because not only are you getting their insight on what, what it feels like for them or what they'd relate it to. For me, the, the lesson that I learned was, okay, like I'm creating, I'm collecting more tools in my toolbox because usually right i've spent a lot of time if if we're if i was around you and you're doing a training session for instance and you say hey man like hot box 
I'm like, oh, that's a great cue, right? That's a great yeah. cue. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that and put it in my toolbox, record yes. it somewhere. Um, and, you, you know, you keep c- collecting these kind of cues and these tools in your toolbox that you can use with different clients and athletes that might not kind of get one cue but are getting another one. Yeah. But this idea of actually probably the greatest, you know, cues that you can get are from sometimes athletes and clients. Hey, what are you thinking 100%. about? Like, what, and what do you, because my note that I took was actually, uh, you know, on my phone just quickly. I try, to, I try to take the thing that I learned and record it somewhere so I don't forget about it. But taking, like collecting these cues and these thoughts and, and, and what the clients and, and uh, athletes are thinking and put, just put them down somewhere that you can come back to it and go like, For oh, sure. I, I never would think that this would be something they're thinking about. Um, but it's coming from them. So of course, it's the best feedback that you can get. Do you, oh, 100%. I, I guess my question for you is, do you ever, you know, as you were kind of, I, I, through your career, when you hear stuff back like that, do you record it somewhere? Do you, you know, you kind of make a, a process out of it? And, you know, I don't know, let's just use the squat because you use the squat. Yeah. And, you know, you got feedback and like, oh, okay, like, I'm going to write this down because this is something obviously that the athlete is thinking or is their own kind of personal cue. Yeah. So uh, I think everyone's different in how they log those moments. Uh, For me early on, definitely I'd have the program out there. And if something really landed with an athlete, I'd probably write it down. But I think as I moved on, because I was so focused around how I focused my athletes. It was like my mind was a sponge for that. And I was constantly looking for them and I was logging them. And that's almost what occupied my mind more than anything else because the the program was on the piece of paper. I I knew I was never gonna forget that. And so for me, rightly or wrongly, as I moved forward, I, I didn't write them down as much as I just mentally made a note. But I think for other people, Uh, writing them down makes a lot of sense, especially if you have, let's say, your personal trainer and you have 30 or 40 clients. It's probably going to be difficult and you're likely to confuse what cues or which cues work best with who. And so if you have a way to log the program, just keeping a log in your note section of key cues, especially those light bulb cues, is a great way to go about it. And I talk about this in terms of the language locker. You know, so are you tapping in? Do you understand your client's language locker, their words, their phrases that connect with them? Uh, But to be honest with you, ultimately, if it's a really good cue and it's related to an important movement that they're learning, the ultimate keeper of the cue should be the client, should be the athlete. And so probably what I found myself doing more than anything in that debrief is when we found a cue that really landed, that seemed to work well for them. And Luca, let's be honest, you've been coaching a long time. You know that when you find a cue that really resonates with that person, and it resonates with them not only because it made the movement better, but it's almost like it just personally connected with them. It's like a song that they really like. They just want to replay it over and over again. And it almost creates this sense of, I've described as a superpower. When you get the right cue, it's like, I can just think this and all of a sudden my basketball shot improves. Yep. My body position improves, right? That, that feels pretty good. You know, that's the, that's the emotional response one gets 
when they actively observe themselves learning and getting better. It's, the, it's, it's almost the essence of what self-efficacy is when it's being created. And so I would work hard with the athlete to talk about owning that cue, owning that focus. And I think through that discussion, we both had ownership in remembering what that cue is. And sometimes they were ones I wanted to log because I'd want to use them with other people. And, and other times it was just unique to that person. So no matter an individual's method, you need to be paying attention to the cues that work, especially those ones that just are spur of the moment. And really then what we're getting after here though, Luca, as a final point, is you have to ask yourself, are you gonna be a collector of cues or are you gonna be a craftsman of cues? Mm. And what the book really tries to get after is to teach you how to one, recognize that coaching is a skill, it's a behavior, it's a habit, it is a craft. And while I think we are very good at sharpening the proverbial sword that we call programming, are we equally good at sharpening the proverbial sword that we call coaching and communication? Uh, I think most people have told me that, that no, we don't sharpen it as much as the other one. And so for me, the book then teaches you how to set up your mental workshop to start to craft cues versus just collect them. And once you start to know how to craft them, once you know the anatomy of an external cue, the anatomy of an analogy, which you have to initially develop by writing them down in your programming sessions, preparing your cues, not scripting them, but at least preparing some ideas that you might want to deploy in a session. Otherwise, you're going to revert to type. But once you start to use these models to learn how to sharpen the sword that is coaching and communication, inevitably, those models start to deploy themselves naturally in your program, live on the training floor. When you have a person looking back at you, blank-faced, when all your cues have failed, you have a method to go back to, to come up and synthesize the next best cue for them. And ultimately, that's my hope for the book is that we are giving coaches tangible skills that are born and developed when they have the time, when they're programming, but in doing so, inevitably allow them to use those same methods when they don't have the time, when they're right in front of a person and you're not relying on the cues that were handed down from earlier generations by the campfire, but you can truly be a craftsman in the moment, coming up with the best words to serve that person, to serve that movement. That's fantastic. It's actually, uh, you know, the book has a phenomenal, uh, I would say, portion to it, where there's so much great cues and pictures demonstrating. I mean, it's, it's, it's awesome. So, I mean, just that section in itself, it's almost like the, you know, the, the cook and your chef, right? There's a, there is a cookbook, there's a cookbook in there on, on movement and how to coach and cue movement. And, and, and it's fantastic. But I love that. Like, you're, you're like, hey, listen, be a great cook, but learn how to be a chef. And, uh, yes. and be able to master this because I mean that's 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 really the true goal and uh, and I could talk to you forever about this man but like what I what I wanted to do is definitely get some quick fire almost, almost like if you know if, if today's Nick could go back you know and uh, dock dock through you back into the back to the future car and um and then <laughs> took you back not right at the beginning of your career but maybe two to three years in and if you were to kind of coach yourself up to, to be a better coach with all that you do now that you know now and, and the book that you've, you've written, what would be some like 
two or three, you know, main points that maybe a lot of coaches today, you know, could really focus on that. You're like, man, these are the two to three things. If I knew back then I'd coach myself because they're so important. Um, and, and people just don't do them enough, but it really yeah. give them the biggest value as far as getting as much out of their clients and then becoming a better coach. For sure. For sure. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm fortunate that I had a lot of great mentors more by chance than, than choice that I ran into that saved me a lot of headache and heartache uh, from a coaching perspective. And it's funny enough, the advice I'm going to give myself former self. Now I was given back then. <laughs> I just wasn't, I just wasn't prepared. I wasn't prepared to hear it or apply it. Uh, so the first thing I would say is you have to be patient. And that word for me is always, when people ask me this question, it's the first word that pops in my mind because the, the, young, the young Nick, and still to a degree now, I was always trying to consume information and, and, and get ahead through hard work, but get ahead faster than I was, was ready for. You know, I was always, I was trying to get on perform better stage five years, you know, before I should, I, I was trying to get to the elite athletes three years before I should. And I didn't always just recognize that when you're in the trenches, developing yourself is some of the most valuable time. So from a personal development perspective, patience is, is a quality that for me was one that I had to learn to develop over time and equally with a client is patience important when it comes to coaching most certainly it is uh, i remember early on as a coach i would be anxious i would be excited and you noted this earlier luca to tell them to share with them everything that i knew about what i was teaching and you know part of you it's like well i'm trying to prove to them that they made a good decision I'm trying to prove to myself and possibly others around me that I know what I'm talking about, but hopefully more than anything, I'm a, I'm a servant. I just want to make them better. I want to give, I want to give, I want to give. But only through time did I realize I also need to be patient as a coach, that I cannot outpace the natural rate of learning, just as I couldn't outpace the natural rate of personal development. So, so patience is something that resonates for me on the development side of myself, but also in the way I approached coaching athletes. And I, so I think that would be number one. And then the second thing, so I'll leave you with two, I had to look up from the program so that I could see the person. So many coaches, not in the literal sense, of looking down at their clipboard, but in the cognitive sense, behind those eyeballs, their mind is so often on the program. What's the next exercise? What's the reps? What's the sets? What's the load? Are we on time? Did they get it done? Is the effort there? If all of our attention as a coach is occupied by the program, then how can we truly be present and see the person the program is meant to influence. And it was in 2009 when I took over the NFL Combine Development Program that about halfway through that process, I realized my error, that my mind was so occupied by the program, the script sounding a certain way, 
being a certain way that I did not see what was right in front of me. And thus I couldn't even begin to get to know the person behind the player until I released myself from the gravitational pull that is the program that is the what. And thus I feel the how has liberated me, brought me into the present and allowed me to be a better coach for the person in front of me. I don't think you could have uh, wrapped this up any better than those two very, very, very powerful points. And kind of, uh, those are definitely one of two, like two big principles. Man, I, you know, it's, it's interesting because I got so many notes, right? And like, I could probably go another seven episodes with you. And I'm sure that you <laughs> could easily uh, be spitting fire. Um, but I know it's also kind of getting a, a little bit late there. Nick, you know, before actually, before I, I, I close this up, um, man, please. I mean, first of all, I would highly encourage. And there's, you know, you guys know I share the things that I read and, and, and I love. I'm telling you, like, this is not a nice, it would be nice to have this book. This is a must in your library and not just for it to sit there, but like, you got to study it over and over again. Seriously, that's how much I, I love it. And, um, and I don't BS. So, you know, get the book, but let, let, let everybody know where they can, you know, find out more about you. Nick, Nick does also a great job on, on his social media, but I'll, I'll let you tell that where they can, can they get the book, uh, where they can follow you, find out more um, before, before I finish off. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, again, I, I greatly appreciate your, your words. And if I can say this, um, I wrote this book as a servant. I, I recognize that this information existed but it didn't exist in a form that the entire movement profession could access. And, you know, I spent over 10 years thinking about this, Luca. And in that time, there was plenty of opportunities for others to step in that space and write this book. And had they, I would not have written it. So for me, I feel truly it's a calling. It's done from a place of service. But I know for this book to truly be successful, but more importantly, for the messages to be successful, and more importantly, for the messages to actually impact the people that we are trying to impact on a day-to-day -day basis, it will take you, it will take others to champion this message because it is not my message. I might be the messenger, but it is not my message. It is our message. And it's simply a message that needed to be told and needed a storyteller like all great stories they need to be told by many to live on and so i hope that this does that so if you want to be part of the journey if you want to be the storyteller uh then the the places to to go learn more obviously the book is at amazon uh human kinetics uh, i will say that internationally there are some delays due to, to covid so i do apologize be patient but you can get on amazon you can get on human kinetics and grab the copy it's also on kindle as well as Apple ebook. Uh, from a social media perspective, like you look, I'm trying to put great stuff out there that is helping people in little sound bites they can digest throughout the day. So that's at Nick Winkleman for both Instagram as well as Twitter. But the big thing for me right now is, is my website. I'm trying to put out really good information to help put a catalyst, to put an echo on this story worldwide. And that's the languageofcoaching.com. So even for people, you know, I'm, I'm doing monthly, monthly webinars, similar to one we're doing right now. Tomorrow night, I got Alan Cosgrove and, and Luca, maybe you can even join me one day, just talking with coaches about coaching. So, so that's me. And that's what I'm about, what I'm trying to do. I love it. 
I, I will absolutely spread the message. Uh, matter of fact, uh, just ordered uh, the book for the whole team. And if you're at the summit, uh, everybody in VIP is going to get this book because that's how damn good it is. Um, so we're, we're going to keep we're going to keep it going because this is what coaching needs. I, I feel like, and uh, it's an unbelievable resource. Nick, thank you so much. Uh, I really really appreciate it. This was absolutely awesome. Everybody tuning in, uh, thank you. You could have been anywhere else, but you were here getting better, listening, learning, applying, hopefully right afterwards, as I always try to push you guys to do. Uh, but with that said, we are out and we'll be back with the next episode of the Vigor Life Podcast. Peace.